Coming back to the book of Jeremiah tonight in chapter 11. Jeremiah chapter 11, we'll read from verse 1 down through verse 13. Won't get quite that far this evening, but we'll try to make it through verse 10. We've covered the first five verses so far. Jeremiah chapter 11, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Hear ye the words of this covenant, and speak unto the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Cursed be the man that obeyeth not the words of this covenant, which I commanded your fathers in the day that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice, and do them according to all which I command you. So shall ye be my people, and I will be your God, that I may perform the oath which I have sworn unto your fathers, to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, as it is this day. Then answered I and said, So be it, O Lord. Then the Lord said unto me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear ye the words of this covenant, and do them. For I earnestly protested unto your fathers in the day that I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, even unto this day, rising early and protesting, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they obeyed not, nor inclined their ear, but walked every one in the imagination of their evil heart. Therefore I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but they did them not. And the Lord said unto me, A conspiracy is found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They are turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, which refused to hear my words, and they went after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon them, which they shall not be able to escape. And though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. Then shall the cities of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem go and cry unto the gods unto whom they offer incense, but they shall not save them at all in the time of their trouble. For according to the number of thy cities were thy gods, O Judah, and according to the number of the streets of Jerusalem have ye set up altars to that shameful thing, even altars to burn incense unto Baal. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this evening as we gather around your word for the word of God, for the inspired scriptures which you have breathed out and committed uh, to your church, this word which is able to make us wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. We thank you for these ancient scriptures written long before Christ came, which were pointing the way towards Him and warning men of sin and of the consequences of sin even long beforehand. And surely if we had eyes to see, we would recognize the evil consequences of sin in our own lives and as we observe the lives of others and as we study the history of peoples and nations, we see that sin and rebellion always rebounds upon those who practice it and wreaks great havoc and destruction in their lives and we are persuaded eternal destruction as well for those who do not repent and turn and seek your favor through Christ. I pray that that would not be the case with any who are here tonight, that none of them would be on the left hand of Christ at the judgment, but that they would be, uh, by faith and repentance, be numbered among the sheep on the right hand who will uh, inherit the kingdom prepared for the righteous from the foundation of the world. Please help us tonight in the hearing of your word, and I pray that our souls may be fed and nourished that you would bless us to be hearers of your word and, and uh, actual doers of the word and not just hearers only. I thank you that we have the privilege of hearing, but I pray that we would not waste it by refusing to do that which you command us to do. Please help, we pray, both the preacher and the hearers, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> At the beginning of this chapter, in the first five verses that we've already covered, the Lord charged Jeremiah to remind 
the people of Judah that they were bound to the covenant that he made with their fathers. They were reminded that the curse of God would be upon the nation collectively as a group of tribes who were united uh, as the people of Israel, but it would also be upon every individual Israelite who rejected the terms of the covenant and rebelled against Jehovah, their covenant overlord, who had brought them into this uh, wonderful relationship with himself and promised them all sorts of blessings if they would but obey his voice. Great blessings, he told them, would abound for those who took the covenant seriously and obeyed it. And indeed, they would inherit the supreme blessing, the blessing which even describes the condition of God's people in the new heavens and the new earth. Ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. As we saw in verse 4, something that is repeated from Genesis to Revelation, the ultimate promise for God's people. We His people and He our God. This could have been the blessing of Israel even here on earth if they would have kept the covenant that God gave them. Whether the people would respond or not, Jeremiah, like the Hebrew forefathers in the time of Joshua who stood on Mounts Ebal and Gerizim, responded at the end of verse 5 where we left off, so be it, the Hebrew word, Amen. So be it, O Lord. But the Lord was not yet done with what he had to say to his rebellious people. And again, he would send his prophet with a message to the generality of the people of the kingdom of Judah. His audience to whom he is to proclaim the word of God, we're told in verse 6, is uh, the people of the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Now, those who have invested themselves in studying the book of Jeremiah, the Jeremiah scholars, have argued over whether Jeremiah's ministry was one that was based entirely around the temple where basically all of his preaching and work was done there in the temple complex or if he covered a wider geographic area and went outside of Jerusalem and preached throughout the towns of Judah. This text would seem to indicate that Jeremiah did sometimes go outside Jerusalem and into other towns, though it would be possible, I suppose, that he only addressed the general population when they came into the holy city to worship or to attend the feasts. But regardless of, of that, which isn't really a point of any great interest as far as I'm concerned, Wherever Jeremiah found God's covenant people, he was to give them the message which the ancient prophets were constantly proclaiming, Hear ye the words of this covenant and do them. I pointed out last time uh, that that little term words, which we can easily just skim over and not really think anything of it, but that word actually can have somewhat of a, a formal and a legal uh, weight to it. You remember when... Uh, the Lord was delivering the Ten Commandments. It said all these words the Lord spake to them in Exodus 20 and verse 1. And then he delivered the Ten Commandments. And it makes me wonder if when Jeremiah was going to preach a sermon like this, perhaps when he said, hear ye these words, giving them the terminology of the covenant, perhaps he went ahead and recited all of the Ten Commandments, which were the bond of the covenant between God and Israel. We know that this, uh, those Ten Commandments were a condensation of, of what God required of His people. If they yielded obedience to these words, they had these wonderful promises from the Lord. You can go back to Exodus 19 and read them. The Lord would make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, His own special people, uh, His peculiar people, His special treasure. Blessings which now accrue to the true Israel of God, the new covenant believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are now God's Israel. And of course they had the warnings in the law which were repeated by Jeremiah and the other prophets, that if they did not obey the terms of the covenant, that they would fall under God's judgment, his curses would run them down and trample them in the dust. 
I pointed out in our last message uh, that covered the first five verses of chapter 11 that Jeremiah is drawing heavily from Deuteronomy in this particular oracle. And this first statement in uh, verse 6 where he tells them to proclaim all the words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem and tells them, hear the words of this covenant and do them. This again is probably an allusion back to Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 9 where we read, Keep therefore the words of this covenant and do them that ye may prosper in all that you do. So you see the very close similarity. We have the word here instead of keep as it is in Deuteronomy, but it's uh, very, very close to being the same language. So it's quite likely that we have either an allusion or at least a rough paraphrase of Deuteronomy 29.9 here in Jeremiah 11 verse 6. This was not some new message to be proclaimed by Jeremiah. I made this point last time, but it is one that deserves to be hit upon again and again and again because of the arrogance of modern man. And, and even Christians fall into this sometime and talk about the, uh, the development of human morality and things like that. Men may think that their morality and their spiritual concepts need to be updated and modified. It used to be every few hundred years, but the time keeps as, uh, as uh, the means of communication uh, gets speedier and speedier. Men think that things need an update every decade or every, uh, every month nowadays. Things are always changing, and so people think they have to adapt their morality to the changes. The things that people think are perfectly normal and moral now, if you could take a time machine 100 years into the future, you would th- find that people think very differently 100 years in the future, just like we know that they did 100 years in the past. But the good thing about God's standard of righteousness is that it never changes. And that's why God's people, all the way from Adam and Eve and Abel, all the way to the very last generation, whenever that will be, God's people have lived and thought basically the same way. They've lived in very different cultures and under very different circumstances. They may wear different kinds of clothes. They may have different kinds of employments. But God's people have always basically thought and acted the same way. Whether it's the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the great empires running all the way from the Babylonians and through the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans, the Spanish Empire, the British, the Americans, whatever changes are wrought among the societies of man, when God sends his messengers to proclaim his word to any people, they're always just proclaiming this one message. They don't have to update and modify the message of, the, of God's word to adapt to the times. They may have to apply it to the changing circumstances of the time, but they're not changing the message. So whether it is Moses coming out of Egypt with the children of Israel or the prophet Samuel some 400, 500 years later and then Jeremiah around 600 B.C., it's always this same message that God is telling us, obey my voice. God is always calling upon his human creatures to render obedience to him. That voice which had spoken from the fiery cloud at Mount Sinai had decreed the law which God perpetually expects his people to obey. It is the law to which he is going to hold men to account at the day of judgment. I hope that we all recognize that. I hope that we recognize that when God calls us to account for the deeds done in the body when we stand before him in judgment, he's not going to judge us according to what the people of our particular society thought was good and right and proper. He is going to judge us according to this law, according to the same standard by which he was judging the people of Judah. So God's prophets, when they came... They weren't changing what Moses had, uh, had told them hundreds of years before. 
what are we, like 800 years, 700 years, Moses preceded Jeremiah? A little bit of uh, disagreement as to when Moses uh, led the children of Israel out of Egypt, but probably seven, 800 years before. But God's morality hadn't changed. Jeremiah didn't have to invent some new set of commandments. He just went back to the old ones that God had given them at Mount Sinai. God's prophets never came bringing a new message. In fact, his very last prophet, Malachi, just about the last word of the Old Testament was for them to remember the word that I spoke to you uh, from Mount Horeb and the law and the commandments that I gave to you through Moses. They never came proclaiming a new morality, a new spirituality, but their aim was always to return the people back to the old paths. Thou shalt have no other gods before me is not going to be modified to accommodate the pluralists and the universalists. Thou shalt not kill is not going to get a footnote to make way for uh, man's evolving views on abortion or euthanasia or anything like that. Thou shalt not commit adultery is not going to be amended with all of the exceptions designed to excuse man's addiction to promiscuity and immorality. God's ministers, His true ministers are always calling upon everyone that will hear to obey the Lord and His immutable standard of righteousness. And God has been very faithful in sending messenger after messenger throughout the ages. He certainly was very faithful to Judah as we see it uh, here in uh, our text. In, uh, as you read through it, He, he says that uh, He was rising up early and protesting, saying, Obey my voice. Verse 7. I couldn't find it there for a second. But here in verse 7 He tells them, he was rising up early. And the, the picture there is of somebody who's very diligent about what he's doing. If you accuse a working man of being lazy, he'll tell you, hold your horses. I get up out of bed at 4.30 and I go into work. I work my 8, 10, 12-hour shift, however long it is, and then I come home and work with my family. He's not going to accept that kind of charge. And if the people uh, wanted to accuse God of not telling them what they ought to be doing, the Lord reminds them, I have constantly been sending you my messengers like a man getting up out of bed early to take care of his business. Messenger after prophet after messenger after prophet I've been sending to you and all of them proclaiming this word. Repent of your wickedness and your idolatry. Return to the Lord and return to His law. And so God continues to do today. Amen. It does seem that we are in very much the case that uh, God spoke of in the days of Amos when he said that he sent a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. That doesn't mean that there is a dearth of religion. People can be very religious and not be hearing the words of the Lord. But God does still have his true messengers even in the apostate countries of the West. All of God's true servants can be called by the term that Peter used to describe Noah, preachers of righteousness. We proclaim God's righteous law, his unfaithful, infallible and unchanging standard. People might think that, well, don't talk to me about that. God's preachers are those who proclaim the love of Jesus. But the truth is that there's no point in talking to people about the love of Jesus if you haven't explained to them first the strict demands and requirements of God's law. Because that's, that's where you begin to see the love of Christ in its proper perspective. And so after you show men just how lost and ruined and spiritually bankrupt they are in comparison to the standard of God's law, then you proceed to show those who have broken God's law, which is every single one of us, how they can be saved by the redemption accomplished through the one man that ever kept that law perfectly, and how they can have a righteousness that will satisfy even God's infinitely exacting standards. The sad legacy of Israel's history is set before us in verse 8. They did not obey. They did not incline their ear. They didn't listen to God's law, and they certainly didn't obey it, but they walked every one in the imagination of his evil heart. 
in spite of the coaxing of glorious promises and the threatenings of dreadful calamities, the people would not obey. Their hearts were too much corrupted by sin, too much in love with their idols. Instead of walking in God's ways, we are told that they walked in the imagination of their own evil hearts. I say it all the time, probably enough that people get tired of hearing it, but we cannot repeat it too often because I know you're hearing the other thing a whole lot more from the world, from your contact with the world, that going your own way is going in that broad path that Jesus talked about that leads to destruction. The very reason that the Lord Jesus died, according to Isaiah 53, verse 6, is because all we like sheep have gone astray, we have gone everyone to his own way. When we go our own way, we're going away from God. There is absolutely zero chance, 0.0% chance that if you go your own way, that that way is going to happen to coincide with God's way. Your heart is too much corrupted by sin. If you go your way, you will not be going God's way. The very thing that the Bible constantly speaks of in terms of constant and uniform condemnation, the world would celebrate and applaud with loud music and bright colors. But, as Solomon warns us more than once in the book of Proverbs, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. The way that seems good and right to you and looks the most pleasurable, the most enriching, the most exciting, it is very likely the way that is going to lead you down to death. In fact, it certainly is if it's not the way of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and taking up your cross to follow after Him. We cannot go our own way and prosper. And so... If we're going to be God's people, we must ignore and resist the tuggings of the sinful heart, the temptations of the world. We must suppress the motions of our evil hearts and go God's way. God's way that is laid out for us here in His law and throughout all of the Word of God. We know that the law pronounces cursing and destruction upon the disobedient and the rebellious. We know that God is going to exact vengeance and judgment upon those who will not bend the knee in repentance and obedience before it. So, whether these words of verse 8 are spoken prophetically as it is given to us in our translation, the last half of the verse particularly, uh, or if it is actually pointing them back to their history. And some of the newer translations actually translate it that way. Uh, they say that that is actually a more faithful and accurate rendering of the Hebrew that instead of saying, I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, that it's actually pointing back to their history and referring to the many judgments that God had brought upon them before. And if you have a newer translation, you'll probably see that reflected there. But actually, it really doesn't matter all that much because even if it is pointing them back to their history, the whole point is that just like I judged your forefathers, I'm going to judge you as well. Amen. The people of Judah had many instances in their own national history that they could look back to. Most poignantly, I suppose, the extinction of the kingdom of the ten tribes by the hands of the Assyrians. They were sons of Jacob just like they themselves were. And so, as God has already warned them through Jeremiah, if, if he would judge the ten tribes by the Assyrians and wipe them out and scatter them into exile, he would certainly do the same to the people of Judah if they continued in their rebellion. But that is exactly what they were doing. They were following their own evil hearts. And you notice that there in verse 8, it says the imagination of their evil heart. And that's just a definition of what the human heart, apart from the grace of God, is. Every imagination of the thought of man's heart is only evil, and that continually. The Lord Jesus taught the same thing. You remember that remarkable little saying when he was giving the parable about a, a father would not give a stone to a son who was asking for bread. 
he closes that, closed that up by saying, if ye, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give to those who, uh, who ask the Holy Spirit? And the only point I'm making from that is that Jesus says, if ye, being evil, just stating it as a matter of fact, but that's what our hearts are. We may know how to do good to our children and to our neighbors uh, to some extent, but the reality is that our hearts are still evil. But if even we in our evil condition can know how to do good in some ways, then God certainly knows how to do good on a much higher level than we do. But our hearts are evil. And until we come to grips with that and realize that that's just not talking in some very general way that doesn't apply to me, but that's talking to me personally, that my heart is evil, my heart is corrupt and wants to turn away from God and do its own thing, until we recognize that, we will just continue right on in the same old path of rebellion. That's what Judah was doing. In verse 9, the Lord informs Jeremiah that he has discovered an evil conspiracy among the very people of Judah and Jerusalem, the people that he was sending Jeremiah to minister to. I think that the term used here in verse 9, that word conspiracy, is an interesting one. In most of the uses of this Hebrew word, the Hebrew word is kesher or kesher, it is translated as conspiracy and usually just has the normal meaning of conspiracy that we would uh, give to it, a group of people getting together to plot some uh, kind of wickedness. For instance, in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 12, when Absalom sent for David's counselor Ahithophel, and uh, it talks about the people are being gathered together unto Absalom, it says that the conspiracy was strong. And of course, that's uh, a very obvious usage of the word, good translation of it. Absalom had gathered a bunch of David's so-called friends and had gathered them together with him and they were all plotting and scheming to kick David off of his throne, have him killed and give the throne to Absalom. The same word you will find used several times in the historical records in Kings and Chronicles to describe conspiracies that overthrew certain kings. Many of the monarchs of the northern kingdom of course were deposed by rivals and assassinated and oftentimes their whole families wiped out and some of the kings of Judah were assassinated as well. There are a few times, you find it in 1 Kings 16.20 concerning Zimri who had plotted and killed uh, the king that uh, was on the throne. don't remember which one it was. But I think Zimri ended up being killed by Omri who uh, was the father of Ahab. But it says of Zimri that uh, just something like the treason that he committed is written in the book of the kings of Israel. And you'll also find it in 2 Kings 11.14 and a parallel passage in 2 Chronicles 23.13 where the word is rendered as treason instead of conspiracy. You remember Athaliah when she came into the temple and saw that they had crowned Joash and, and the people were celebrating because they had a son of David to take the throne and Athaliah rends her clothes and cries, treason, treason, same word that is here in Jeremiah 11.9 translated as conspiracy. And it is certainly not impossible that treason could be included in the thought behind verse 9 because what the people of Judah and Jerusalem were doing amounted to nothing less than spiritual treason against their king and covenant overlord, the Lord of hosts. Political and, and spiritual treason in the nation of Israel, which had a theocratic government, was basically the same thing. There was no separation of church and state as far as they were concerned. If you were in rebellion against God, you were in rebellion against the, the government as well. God had created them. God had redeemed them out of Egypt. He had protected and delivered them many times over the generations. But still, they were proudly defying His laws. They were going after idols. They were violating His commandments with abandon. 
To worship another god besides Jehovah was a, an act of high treason of the very worst sort. But I think that since conspiracy is the primary meaning and usage of this word, that's probably the best translation for it to be given here. And I think that it's given to indicate the widespread nature of the rebellion. We've seen this earlier on in Jeremiah, that wickedness had permeated every level of the society. Let's look back just to refresh our memories in chapter 5. Read the first five verses there. The Lord tells Jeremiah, Run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and see now, and know, and seek in the broad places thereof. If ye can find a man, if there be any that executeth judgment, that seeketh the truth, then I will pardon it. And though they say, The Lord liveth, surely they swear falsely. Now Jeremiah responds, O Lord, are not thine eyes upon the truth? Thou hast stricken them, but they have not grieved. Thou hast consumed them, but they have refused to receive receive correction. They have made their faces harder than a rock. They have refused to return. Therefore I said, Surely these are poor, they are foolish, for they know not the way of the Lord, nor the judgment of their God. So Jeremiah goes and he looks at the poor people of the kingdom, and he decides, well, they're in rebellion against God, but it's probably just out of their ignorance and poverty. So, verse 5, I will get me unto the great men and will speak unto them. The educated, upper classes, the wealthy, those who do have leisure to study the law of God. They have known the way of the Lord and the judgment of their God, but then you see what he finds among them. These have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. So the wealthy, the educated, the elite, they were just as bad as the poor. So when we see talk here about a conspiracy, whether it's alluding to any kind of formal conspiracy arranged by a particular person or persons in the kingdom, or whether it's just an informal agreement for all of the people to run together after their idols, somewhat hard to decide. There are those who see this text as strong evidence that the historical setting for this particular oracle is to be found during the days of Jehoiakim. You remember that during Josiah's reign, there was a great reformation of worship that had taken place, and that godly king had gone throughout the length and breadth of Canaan, destroying all of the monuments to idolatry wherever he could find them. But almost immediately after Josiah died in battle, you had the three-month reign of Jehoahaz, and he had already started off bad, but he was quickly deposed and deported down to Egypt. And then idolatry very quickly began again to be accepted and tolerated even, uh, even at the highest ranks of the kingdom. And that would include the house of Jehoiakim. So it would make a great deal of sense, I suppose, if verses 9 and 10, where he talks about a conspiracy being found among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, turning back to the iniquities of their forefathers, that that certainly could refer to the spiritual declension that happened just about as soon as Josiah died. Of course, there was not really a true revival in a spiritual sense during Josiah's reign, as we pointed out when we went through chapter 3. People were just obeying the king because, more or less, they didn't have any choice. We don't know if Jehoiakim simply turned a blind eye as the people started to return to their old gods, or whether there was some sort of official council between civil and religious leaders to bring, bring bring back the idolatrous customs that had been practiced before. Now the text in verse 9 actually does not point to the authorities. He doesn't talk about the kings or the princes or the priests, but he speaks only of the people in general, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the sense would seem to be that all of the people together, which I suppose would include both the high-ranking and the lower classes of the people, that they were all in agreement. They were all involved in this conspiracy, whether formally or informally, They were all agreed that God's ways were too restrictive 
and they needed to go back to the religious customs commonly practiced during the reigns of kings like Manasseh and Amon, who had worshipped all of the hosts of heaven and brought their idols into the temple and done all sorts of abominations in their hatred of God and of His law. There was a real conspiracy going on here. This isn't just a fruitcake conspiracy theory. The media wants you to think that every theory of a conspiracy out there is just completely crazy, but you know, a lot of the so-called conspiracy theories that people began to talk about when COVID first started and were mocked by the experts in government and media, well, they turned out to be true. And here's a conspiracy theory, or actually it's a conspiracy fact because it comes from the Lord and the Lord knows everything. This one too turns out to actually be based in fact. The people were not following in the path of righteousness that Josiah had set before them. They were determined not to adhere to the covenant to which they had rededicated themselves during his reign. I think we read the text from 2 Chronicles when we last preached out of Jeremiah where Josiah had gathered the people together and had uh, renewed their allegiance to the covenant that God had established with them in the time of Moses. Josiah had made them promise that they would be the Lord's people and that they would obey his law But instead, as soon as Josiah was off the scene, they went right back to the wicked practices of their forefathers. Some of us were talking about showing respect for your parents even after they're uh, dead and gone. And in many ways, it's certainly a good thing to show honor and respect for your ancestors, even after they've passed away. But at the same time, we do have to qualify that by saying that when your ancestors have been wicked, then it would be wickedness to follow in their footsteps you can still show some honor and respect for them in the way that you speak of them, in the way that you remember them, the way that you speak of them to others particularly. But if you had a father or a grandfather that was a drunk, for instance, you don't don't want to follow on into the sins that he committed. You want to stay away from the sinful things that he did, whatever they may have been. Honor his virtues, talk about his good points, but don't follow in the sins that he did. God isn't telling them here to be tearing down all of the monuments to their forefathers as is popular to do today but he's telling them you better not be going back to the idolatry that your fathers were practicing but of course that's exactly what the people of Judah had done the idolatry the murders the covetousness the immorality that has been complained about through the first ten chapters so commonly practiced by their fathers especially during the licentious reigns of some of their worst kings that was the pattern that the people were setting themselves to follow And that's the thing uh, about uh, wicked men. People who are uh, demagogues, those who want to get power from the people, win votes and things like that, they always talk of the people as if they are very virtuous and have very high standards and are very moral. The reality is, when you read a text like this, you cannot help but see that the people preferred the idolatry, the tyranny, and the debauchery of an Ahaziah, an Ahaz, or a Manasseh to the righteous rule of a Hezekiah or a Josiah. They wanted a wicked king. They didn't want a king that was throwing their idols down and telling them to worship and serve the Lord alone. They wanted a king that would let them go right on in their wickedness. Not even the glaring historical example of their brethren of the former northern kingdom would deter them. They'd seen what God had done to the ten tribes through... Uh, the through the Assyrian armies and how they've been wiped out the kingdom destroyed their brethren scattered into exile but they thought that they could do the exact same things and even worse and get away with it you will notice that in verse 10 he says the house of Israel and the house of Judah that's why I bring in the northern kingdom because by mentioning the house of Israel he is reminding them of what happened to 
the ten tribes of the northern kingdom that was commonly called Israel. They were all complicit in breaking the covenant. Now, on the surface, and politically and strategically speaking, you would have to say that there were the kingdoms of Judah and Israel were at great odds with one another. They were constantly fighting and quarreling over their borders. They were waging war against each other, sometimes wars in which hundreds of thousands of people died. But they were all united, at least in this, in their determination to break God's law and the covenant that he had made with their fathers. They may not have gotten along about hardly anything else, but they were all in perfect agreement that we don't have to listen to God. We don't have to listen to Moses. We don't have to listen to the prophets that God is sending. We can worship our idols and be just fine. Because Judah had learned nothing from the destruction of the kingdom of the ten tribes, they were doomed to suffer the same destruction as their brethren. Let's take a few moments before we close to apply the things that we've learned in these five verses tonight. In the law of God, in Exodus 23 and verse 2, God commanded, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. But that is what the rebellious people of Judah and Jerusalem were doing, as we have it outlined here for us in this text. It had become popular to scoff at God's law, to deny that His judgment would fall upon them, to think themselves secure because of the presence of the temple. We've seen that in previous chapters. In spite of the fact that they were utterly heedless of the terms of the covenant that God had given them. And we today in our own time have been trained by popular media and education to scoff at the very idea of a conspiracy. They've been working at that for a long time. I think they started soon after the Kennedy assassination to start mocking anybody that said it was anything else than Oswald acting alone. Whatever your thoughts are on that, the whole idea was to get people not to be investing themselves in conspiracy theories. But the reality of wicked men conspiring together to do wicked things is something that is clearly found both throughout Scripture and history. Not every conspiracy theory is right, of course, and we don't need to waste too much time getting into idle speculation as to whether the moon landing was faked or anything like that. But the reality is, whether you have any interest in so-called conspiracy theories or not, Anytime that two people come together to plan to do something sinful, it can rightly be described as an evil conspiracy. Whether they're people in government or whether it's just very average common people living their own uh, fairly irrelevant lives. There's nothing more evident than that there, in the, even here in our own country, than that there has been an evil conspiracy among the political, judicial, media, and corporate leaders of this nation to promote sexual immorality and undermine the ethics and morality that is given to us in the Bible. If you've got got any kind of idea that, boy, isn't it strange that all these people in these businesses and all these people in government and uh, all the education that they're all just saying the same things, well, I guess they must have a good reason to it. If you think there's no conspiracy behind that, well, you're just about uh, as hopelessly ignorant as a person can be. It is evident, it is as plain as the nose on your face, it's even documented in the historical record that there was a conspiracy among the judiciary and those who appointed them in the middle of the last century to ignore all of the history of this country and proclaim that America was designed to be a completely secular country, even though there were Supreme Court decisions as late as the early 1900s declaring that America was a Christian country. Well, about the 1960s, they started saying that We don't want anything to do with the God of the Bible. We're going to kick him out of the courts. We're going to kick him out of the schools. And that's how the founders wanted it. Well, of course, that's not what the founders designed, and that's not what they wanted. 
That was a conspiracy of wicked men who hated God and wanted His Word out of public life. That didn't happen by accident. You can go back and read what the people who founded our education system and many of the people involved in places of power were saying about what their intentions were. It was a conspiracy. It was an evil conspiracy, just like like we're reading about here in Jeremiah. Whenever we get together with other people and agree to do something sinful, we are conspiring against God. It can be something fairly mundane, maybe a group of teenagers planning to sneak out of the house at night and go off and go somewhere where their parents don't allow or go watch a dirty movie or smoke cigarettes or smoke pot or something. It can be something on a much higher level. It could be a wealthy businessman planning with uh, some, uh, some of his comrades to embezzle money from their customers. It can be political leaders working together to start a war that will enrich themselves and their cronies. We sure know that's happened, don't we? But what we all need to remember None of us are in the upper echelons where we can defraud people out of millions of dollars or start a war. I'm thankful that we're not. But what we do need to remember is that there is no rebellion against God that is going to go undiscovered or unpunished. There is no conspiracy so secret and so closely guarded that God does not see right through it. Whatever is going on when these groups of wealthy people and powerful people get together and the media pretty much ignores what they're talking about, Whatever's going on there, whether it's perfectly innocent and harmless or whether they're planning terrible and dangerous and deadly things, they may be hiding from us, but they're not hiding anything from God. Or when children get together and plot to disobey some of the rules of the household, you're not hiding anything from the Lord. You may be able to successfully conceal what you're doing from your parents, but God sees everything that's going on. He sees and knows all of the hearts and the secrets within we cannot even conspire with ourselves within ourselves without God knowing it. We can't have a thought to do evil in our own hearts that we don't even conceal from other people that we conceal from other people, but that God knows it even before we ever thought it. And because God is infinitely righteous and inflexibly just, all of the evil conspiracies, be they the great ones or the very small and minuscule ones, they're all going to be exposed and they're all going to be punished. That which is hidden will be revealed. The secrets of men will be judged in the great day by Jesus Christ. Isn't that what Solomon concluded after all of his philosophical ruminations in the book of Ecclesiastes? There's a whole lot of Ecclesiastes that I have a hard time making any sense of, but I can sure understand the end of it when he says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments because God will bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. You can at least understand that much about it. The question for us is, will our sins be punished upon us or upon the great substitute for sinners? We need to realize that every sin is going to have its punishment exacted. There's not going to be any any sins that go unpunished. The ultimate question then is, will our sins be punished upon us in hell or will they be punished upon the substitute for sinners that God has provided? So I call upon each one of us, especially tonight if you do not know the Lord, I call upon you with all my heart to leave behind your sinful plots and schemes, whether it's something that you just designed in your own heart and haven't told anybody else about, or whether it's something you're working together with other people on, leave it behind. Repent of every evil thought and deed and seek out the mercy and kindness of God which was revealed by the Father punishing His Son on the cross of Calvary to accomplish the salvation of sinners. 
Don't engage yourself in an evil conspiracy. Turn to the Lord. Repent and seek His grace and His favor through Jesus Christ. Would you please join with me in standing as we pray and ask the benediction tonight. Our gracious God and Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the truth of it. I thank You for the applications that can be made from Your Word even in texts that in our normal Bible reading we might just skim over and not think much about it. When we do apply our minds and hearts we can see that there are very pertinent applications to be made to each and every soul who hears. We thank You for it. We pray that this Word would guide our minds and our thoughts and our hearts. We plead, Lord, for the souls of the lost that they may soon come to Jesus Christ and be made new creatures in Him. And now unto him that is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. We're dismissed.